240 years. 240 years. On the the eve of our nation's 240th birthday, I want to talk about one of America's most sacred words, and is the word liberty. 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 Liberty is American way of life. Americans love liberty. Liberty is why millions flock to the shore of our country. Liberty is why a statue bears uh, its name. Liberty appears on some of our money. And liberty governs the way we think and feel and kind of conduct ourselves as Americans. It gives us individuality. Liberty allows us to worship in a place like this uh, uh, without fear of persecution. Liberty allows us to uh, buy and sell property, to have property. And the idea of losing liberty is anathema to Americans. I mean, what if starting tomorrow, everyone, everyone had to wear a monotone colored uniform? Drab, whatever. Gray, green. I mean, what would that do to people? You know what it would do to people. I mean, we would figure out a way to individualize monotone. We would, because we're Americans, and we're liberty lovers. And that's why we dress so diversely at church. Look around, you see? I mean, because wearing our clothing, I mean, it's an expression of who we are. So, so, so we have the business look, and, and then we have the preppy look, and then we have the button-down collar look. That's me. I got that down. We, we got the urban look. We got the denim look. We got the country look, the biker look, the cowboy look. We've got high fashion, low fashion, no fashion. We're all here at Winter Road because we are a liberty lovers, Our liberty does not originate in Washington, D.C. You don't have constitutional liberties. You just have liberties. Because they weren't given to you by the government, they're given to you by God. The God of heaven and earth created us this way. That's why C.S. Lewis once wrote... God created things which had free will. And that means creatures which can go wrong or right. And if a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what made evil possible. And you might ask, why then did God give free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automated creatures that works like machines would be hardly worth creating. The happiness for which God designs for us is the happiness of being freely and voluntarily united with Him and to Him. God didn't make a toy world which only moves when He pulls the strings. He made a real world where we make real choices that can do real good or real harm. A world in which something of real importance can happen. Well, of course, this leads us 
to conclude that while liberty is a gift from God, liberty is also a responsibility to steward. There are always outcomes to our acts of liberty. Always. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, 7, and 8, you cannot fool God, so don't make a fool of yourself. You will harvest what you plant. If you follow your selfish desires, you will harvest destruction. But if you follow the Spirit, you will harvest eternal life. Do you get that? Do you get that there are always outcomes to our acts of liberty? How apt are we at connecting those dots? The, the, the dots between our expression of liberty and the outcome of our liberty choices. How Do we get that? Between freely choosing a direction and realizing the direction to which that freely chosen direction will lead. I really wonder. I really do. Um, I, a single woman says, I, I want to meet and marry a great Christian guy who's got his act together, but then she dates whoever asks her out as long as he's cute. A single guy says, I want, great, I want a great sex life once I'm married, but then he practices with every girl he dates along the way. A married woman says, I want to have a great relationship with my husband, and then she makes the children a priority over him. A husband says, well, I want my kids to respect me when they grow up, you know, and, and then he openly flirts with other women in the neighborhood. A man says, well, I, I want to grow old and invest the latter years of my life in the grandchildren, but then he neglects his health along the way. It's not rocket science, is it? You reap what you sow. And if you want to cut back on fatty foods, you don't exercise your liberty by daily lunches at Cold Stone Creamery. If you want to graduate from school with a GPA, that'll get you academic scholarships. You don't procrastinate via video games. It's not rocket science. We all know that. Those are not pastimes. They're pathways. They lead somewhere. Our acts of liberty always lead somewhere because liberty is never an end. It's a means to an end. Do we get that? And all too often, Americans exercise their liberty in a way guaranteed to deliver an unwanted destination. And that takes us to our scripture reading today in the Old Testament book of Lamentations. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. You'll find that. You'll find Lamentations on page 685 of your church Bibles. Why are we studying through Lamentations? Because Lamentations answers the question what happened to my country? What is going on in my country? Lamentations is about an unwanted destination that inevitably occurs when we abuse our liberty. And Lamentations is the outcry after the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem in the year um, B.C. 587. 
In 587 BC, the Babylonian army invaded the nation of Judah, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, demolished Solomon's temple, and deported the leading citizens back to Babylon. To lament, to lament a lamentation is a threefold cry out to God in protest. God, this is too hard. God, this hurts. It is also a plea to God for mercy. God, this hurts, and I know I'm responsible for this. And then thirdly, a petition to God for help. Cry in protest, plea for mercy, a petition for help. And it's a collection of poems. And the theme of chapter one is pain. And we saw in the theme of chapter two, the wrath of God, and not the wrath of God as if God were this temperamental, moody deity who has to manage his anger somehow. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the biblical wrath of God. The biblical wrath of God is a judicial wrath which comes from his character intent on punishing evil. And we learned that in chapter 2. Chapter 3 was all about mercy. 3.22, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And today, we're looking at Lamentations chapter 4. And the word is consequences. Consequences. Now, um, this chapter depicts the graphic, repulsive picture of what life looks like when people abuse their liberty. And I want to read these verses for us. They're gritty, be forewarned. I, I want to then um, talk a little bit about how these verses are put together and then briskly walk through chapter 4, verse by verse, and then get to our lesson for today. So follow along with me as I read Lamentations chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like the ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the root of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. 
The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This is God's Word. And it's pretty gritty, isn't it? Lamentations chapter 4 is a graphic, repulsive picture of what life looks like when people abuse their liberty. Lamentations chapter 4 is chaos. It's just chaos. And that explains the structure of the poem, which is what... Um, could be called an acrostic, an acrostic. Now, Justin Craig, our family life minister, uh, showed me one of his Bibles that he uses. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. It's called the Action Bible. It's really cool. It is a um, pictorial Bible of kind of a DC Marvel quali uh, quality cartoons that uh, take children... Uh, and senior ministers, I think it's a great Bible, through the Scripture, okay? And there's a brief section on lamentations. And uh, here's what uh, is in the Action Bible. In English, and now the streets lie empty, bitterly our city weeps tonight, comfort is far from her, destruction has come from Babylon, enemies have taken her treasure, for the Lord has rejected her. I... I, I mention this because this is not only the content of what we are reading here in Lamentations, but the style. Do you notice the style? Each sentence begins with the successive letter of our alphabet. So, and that's the way Lamentations is organized. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, 22 verses. Each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and, and then in chapter 3, 
The acrostic intensifies. That's why there are 66 verses. But here in chapter 4, we go back to 22 verses. And yet, if you notice, if you compare in your Bibles, the actual word count or the content is a third less than what we've seen in the previous three chapters. It's a third less. And why? Because there's fatigue that's setting in. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm exhausted from this unwanted location due to the abuse of my liberty. And that, the acrostic, begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and concludes with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet means that the exhaustion is total from A to Z. It's complete. I am absolutely wasted and undone due to this unwanted and unthinkable destination. So with that in mind, let's just walk through this poem verse by verse. In verse 1, we see what appears to be Solomon's temple. The gold, the holy stones, splendid and brilliant was Solomon's temple. And, you know, we live in a color-rich high-definition world, but I mean, we're talking six centuries before Christ, and we're talking about an arid wilderness, sometimes drab-looking environment of, of, say, Judea, and yet then when you see on this, this, this holy mountain, this holy temple, as the gold glitters from the sun, and splendid and beautiful, brilliant gold, which has now tarnished and dulled with mud and dirt and soot from warfare. And then in verses 2 and following, you realize that the poet is not really describing Solomon's temple. No, look. He's talking about the citizenry. He's talking about the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, Only now this priceless gold has morphed into cheap clay throwaway pots. Precious people are now thought of as disposable. And in verse 3, even the jackal, an animal which prowls about the ruins of conquered cities, even jackals are doing something that's not happening to the children of Israel. The jackals are feeding their young. And and back then, the ostrich, mentioned in the last line of verse 3, the ostrich had a reputation of cruelty to its offspring, and so Israel's offspring are being neglected. That's why verse 4 speaks of the children begging for food to no avail. And in verses 5 through 9, we see why. The leading citizens have suffered. They don't have anything to give. The leading citizens, their splendid purple robes, their fit and ruddy bodies, their healthy and rich diets, all gone. And you can't tell the difference between the leading citizens of the city and the commoners. All of their faces are darkened with soot from the warfare. They all look the same. They're unrecognizable. And then this horrific scene in verse 10 where the deprivation and poverty from siege warfare where nothing goes in and nothing comes out is such that Jerusalem's mothers, described otherwise as merciful and compassionate, 
are forced to cannibalize the corpses of their children. And then finally, when Israel fell, verses 11 and 12, I mean, the shock of that news jolted the known world. How could this happen? How could this have occurred? How is it possible? The kings of the earth did not believe, nor uh, any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Now, are you aware that chapters 1, 2, and 4 each begin with the question, how? How? And the answer is provided in verse 13. And note the answer to the question, it's not the state. It's not what's going on in Springfield. It's not what's going on in Washington either. It's not the state or the politicians. Look who gets accused in verse 13. The pastors. Instead of rightly dividing the word of truth, instead of speaking God's word, teaching God's word, living God's word, modeling God's words, the pastors commit spiritual adultery with the politicians and become complicit in the shedding of innocent blood. Hear me. When the church as a corporate body endorses and aligns itself with a political party, it's always good for the party and always bad for the church. These pastors are so stained. It's like they have leprosy. Verse 15. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. Who would say that? People with leprosy. That's what you say back then to people with leprosy. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. Verse 17 speaks of a nation which could not save. What's that? They were watching for help. We were in our watching. We watched for a nation which could not save. What nation is that? That's Egypt. You see, when Babylon was about ready to invade Judah and Jerusalem, the king, the leadership said, well, let's go to Egypt. Let's, let's strike a deal with Egypt and let's seek an alliance with Egypt and against, against Babylon and hold them off. And Jeremiah the prophet said, don't do that. Don't. Egypt is an idol-worshiping nation. Don't do that. Trust in the Lord. But the leadership didn't. They abused their liberty. They chose poorly. In verse 20, this phrase, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. Who does that refer to? That's Zedekiah. Last king of the southern kingdom, Judah. That's Zedekiah, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, under his shadow. And, and it wasn't that Zedekiah was this great and wonderful king. He's not talking about Zedekiah the man, but the dynasty of David, an era was over. By the way, Zedekiah was no boy scout. He was 21 and appointed to the throne by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And, and Nebuchadnezzar said, don't make trouble for me, and you can stay on the throne. Eleven years later, Zedekiah was as rotten as all the other kings 
And he rebelled against God. He revolted against uh, Babylon. And when Babylon invaded, Zedekiah fled. And he was captured. And he was brought before Nebuchadnezzar for trial. And when sentence was passed, Nebuchadnezzar said, bring me Zedekiah's boys. Now remember, Zedekiah is 32 years old. So he's got boys here. 2 Kings 25, 7 says, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. When parents abuse their liberty, children suffer. Others always pay the price for poor leadership. The consequences of poor kings, poor politicians, poor pastors, poor preaching, poor parenting. The people always pay the bill. And Lamentations chapter 4 is the bill. It's the unthinkable. And when the unthinkable occurs, whenever the unthinkable occurs, when we look at this, you know, we say, well, how could God let this happen? God, how could you? God never wanted this to happen. He never wanted this to happen. 2 Chronicles 36, 15 to 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. I mean, this didn't just happen over a weekend. For centuries, God sent his messengers. Verse 16, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That's Lamentations 4. Mocking until there's no remedy. After centuries of disinviting the Lord, the Lord simply left. And when the Lord leaves, disintegration follows. So Dorothy Sayers is a mystery writer. She's also a devoted Christian. And one time she was attempting to explain the moral law of God. Here's how she said it. She said, in our society, there are two kinds of laws. There's the law of the stop sign, and then there's the law of the fire. Now, the law of the stop sign is a law that says that when traffic gets really heavy, like on Prospect Avenue between you know, Windsor and Kirby, city council is going to make a decision. There needs to be a four-way stop around Devonshire, I think. And, and they also decide that if you run that stop sign, it's going to cost you... Oh, 100 bucks. I don't know. And if that's not enough, they're going to double that. Okay. Uh, or if they build a bypass around Prospect Avenue uh, and traffic subsides and lessens, well, then, you know, they'll lessen the fine or take away the fine, erase the penalty. That is, the, the city council controls the law of the stop sign. Okay. Well, then there's the law of the fire. And the law of the fire says that if you put your hand in the fire, you're going to get burned. That's the law of the fire. 
Now, can you imagine the United Nations gathering, signing a treaty, voting unanimously that from here on out, fire would no longer burn? Those delegates leave the UN in victory and in solidarity. They put their hands in the fire. They would discover that there's the law of the fire, and that's far different than the law of the stop sign. Because bound in the nature of the fire itself is the penalty for abusing it. And Dorothy Sayer says that the Word of God is just like that. The moral law of God is just like that. See, you never break God's Word. You don't. You never break. You never break God's Word. God's Word breaks you. And God never reduces the penalty because the penalty for breaking His Word is bound up in His Word itself. And that's what we see in Lamentations chapter 4. Unthinkable things occur when people abuse their liberty. They get broken. Anybody, anybody broken today? Anybody here been abusing their liberty today? Anybody here thinking, well, I'm different? That was Zedekiah centuries ago. Come on. I'm different. Really? Anybody here tired of reaping rotten crops? It's because you're sowing rotten seeds. And your life does not have to look like this. Some of you may be saying, yeah, but this is my life. This is my lamentations for is my life. Is this as good as it gets? You know, am I too far gone? Give me some hope, pastor. Does this sermon get any better? Yes. Yeah, yes, yes, it does. Oh, yes, it's going to get better starting now. Romans 15, 11 says, For whatever was written in former days, like Lamentation chapter 4, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Yes, unthinkable things occur when people abuse their liberty, but the unthinkable does not have to be the last word. Hope is the last word. And hope is in this chapter. Did you see it? It's in verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. How is that possible? It's possible because in this verse, we are offered the hope of another king who lived centuries later, this king who was also in the lineage of David, this king who was in the lineage of these broken and lamenting people, this king whose throne was a Roman cross, this king who cried from that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The unthinkable happened to that king. He who was radiant in eternal glory 
regarded as the temple of the living God, was regarded on that cross as a throwaway object. And his mother saw him die, and she could do nothing to help in any way. And when I see verse 4 of Lamentations chapter 4, I see this king's tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth as he cried out, I thirst. And in verse 8, his face was blacker than soot, beaten by Roman fists. And in verse 9, death by sword would have been far swifter than wasting away on a cross, dying a slave's death. In verse 11, the Lord gave full vent to his judicial wrath, punishing him, the object, his own son. And why? Verse 13, not simply for the sins of the pastors or the prophets or the priests, but for all people. And as in verse 22, when Jesus breathed his last, remember what he said? It is accomplished it's finished and that's why that verse is our hope because you see paul says in romans 8:32 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things let that soak god gave us his son would that not have been enough and he intends to give us all things, all things. This is why we sing of our heavenly Father, he is good, and I am loved. And verse 20 of Lamentations 4 tells us of one who has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish on our own. And that is why when he sends his Holy Spirit unto our lives, his Spirit is the breath of our bodies, the breath of our nostrils, the anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. And under his shadow, under the shadow of his mercy and grace, we live among the nations. I tell you, that reality is, that's now. That's now. In our allegiance to this king, he shapes us into a kingdom of holy priests, a holy people who represent God. For the one who said it is accomplished by giving himself on the cross is no longer on the cross, but has risen and has ascended and is enthroned on high in authority over all nations, including this one. And having sent his Holy Spirit, we're now a sent people, a spirit-filled people acting as his agents his ambassadors, his envoys, his representatives. We, this church family, we're an outpost of the new heavens and the new earth, serving, shepherding, representing him to the nations to make Galatians 5.13 a living reality. My friends, you were chosen to be free, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do anything you want. Use it as an opportunity to serve each other with love. That's the end of our liberty. Liberty is never an end. It is a means to an end. And the end is serving in love. Now, what if we, this church community, what if we were the church community to whom our neighborhood communities and our academic community and our business community and our arts community 
came and said, help us steward our liberty. Teach us, instruct us, help us endure and encourage so that we can use our liberty to serve in love. Show us what that looks like. Show us so that we may have hope. I mean, think about it. What if the most sought-after consultants and advisors and specialists and coaches and mentors came from this church family, men and women, saturated by Christ, men and women, leaders with hearts of integrity and skilled hands, spirit-filled servants, men and women who are in the trenches of our courts and our institutions and our police force and our fire services and our military and our education institutions and our academic institutions like Unit 4, like Beckman, like Urbana Schools, like Parkland, like the business community, like our not-for-profits. What if our banking and finance institutions and our tech industry and, and our medical professions came to us and said, help us be healthy. We want family health, marriage health, fitness health, emotional health, spiritual health. What if we became, through God's Spirit flowing in and through us, the primary source, an oasis of living water to quench thirsty souls? What if that were us here? Church, that's why we're here. That's our mission. That's the end. Liberty is never an end. Liberty is a means to an end. And the end, the end, oh, the end, the end is the answer to every question at Windsor Road Christian Church. Jesus. Jesus. Loving Jesus, loving others in this life and the life to come. That's, that's it. That's it. You want to know the best way to use your freedom? <laughs> Here it is. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen? I told you it gets better once Jesus shows up. Yeah. Amen.